and, and part of what we're doing here as well over the next period is we're kind of examining um, 20 questions. Dan, Dan and I sat down and thought, well, what, what questions would people be asking? Across a range of issues, really. Uh, stuff that people would be asking if they're not yet followers of Jesus. Uh, stuff that we might need refreshing on if we've been followers of Jesus for many years. Uh, and also just gives us a chance to establish what we believe as a church, as a new church, because it is still really early days for us. Um, I've been now preaching uh, effectively since I was 18. I had a short gap after uh, hideously backsliding and then got back on track in my early 20s and then been leading churches really since I was 26. And actually looking at these questions has been really good because I don't know about you, but you can jog along as a Christian and have uh, just sort of the basics. You can be in church for years, never really get examined again. Well, you just don't hear them very often. Or you hear them so many times, you, you only hear the basics and not much other stuff. You know, and, and so you can become numb to it. So we're just trying to take a fresh look. And today we're looking at why did Jesus have to die? Why did that actually happen? Now, um, I've, I've run loads of Alpha courses over the years and Christianity Explore courses, and we'll be looking at doing that in the future. Hold their course. They're quite good, aren't they? Because they give people a chance to sit down, have a bit of church shepherd's pie, which is different to normal shepherd's pie, have, have some uh, church apple crumble and custard afterwards, and debate stuff, you know, and talk as a group about the things you believe or don't believe. I was running one of those courses uh, some years ago in the church where I was a pastor, and we were actually looking at the question, uh, as far as I can recall, uh, who is Jesus, you know, uh, on the Alpha course. And we went through this thing, we had the church shepherds party, apple crumble to custard, we broke into small groups, we started to discuss things. And I could see this lady called Marion, her face was melting as we were talking. And I don't know about you, but you can almost tell sometimes when someone's about to give their life to Jesus Christ. You can just see the barriers just starting to come down and, and it's like the light's going on in someone's eyes. You think, wow, we're just about to have a moment. And we had a moment. I said to Marion, would you, do you believe all this now? She said, yes I do. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? Yes, sir. Yes, I would. So we led in a prayer, and I tell you, I watched her face change. I've seen that many times. Just watch someone's face change. They meet Jesus. I can't describe what that is. It's just like a softness and a joy, and her eyes were all light, and it was very emotional. She was crying, and we gave her a hug, and we gave her a strong cup of tea because it was a little bit of a shock. And think she's been born again. Amazing, she's born again. I think we need to recover that. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We'll talk a little bit about that in, in a minute, if I remember. And I thought this is amazing. And uh, I got in my car afterwards. She was hanging around inside, talking to her friends. and uh, She was phoning her son and all that kind of stuff. Got in my car, thought, that's amazing. That's just amazing. What a privilege to actually be there when somebody is born again. Got in my car, put it in reverse, and drove straight into the back of her car. Which is um, quite embarrassing, really. And, uh, and I actually drove into it quite fast and uh, smashed it up. I, my car was a Toyota Camry, uh, which I bought for 200 quid. Her car was a Peugeot, something or other, that was moderately new. Uh, my car was a big, hefty old uh, lump and just smashed her car to pieces, to be honest. 
So, um, having just led at a Christ, I then um, went back into the church. Um, uh, I mean, you, you can't leave a scene, can you? I mean, really, that'd be, that'd be really simple, wouldn't it? You can't just drive off. So I went back in and thought, I'll take a deep breath here. I hope no one sitting here has ever driven away from a simple accident. This is my prophetic conviction. Excellent. So I, I went back in the church and uh, I said, Marion, I said, um, I said, I'm really sorry. I said, I am just driving your car. She said, oh, I'm, um, what, was it just a light touch? I went, no. <laughs> I can't I need to go and have a look. So um, she's still crying, really, from just having met Jesus. So um, I led her outside uh, with my arm around her shoulders, and she, she immediately turned to me and said, how on earth did you do that, you stupid boy? So uh, I said, well, um, I was just thinking about what happened, and I reversed without looking in my rearview mirror. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. And then I could see, it was really interesting, because she was quite a ferocious woman, actually, um, Pre-Christ. Now she's only she's only a few minutes in, so I thought this is going to be interesting. We'll see what's coming in, and uh, she's called me a stupid boy, which I thought was actually quite fair. That's a, that's a fair comment. Um, and then she looked at me and said, "But how how on earth can I be cross with you? So how can I be cross with you? You just introduced me to Jesus." And I said, "Well, look, why don't we just swap all the details, and you know, I'll, I'll look into it." Now I only had. Third party insurance on my car because so I couldn't afford any more than that. It was just an old wreck anyway. It was a disposable car. Her car was, you know, obviously quite nice. And do you know what? She looked at me and she said, I'll just pay for it all. You know, uh, you can take it for insurance or whatever, but, you know, if there's any damage on your car, I'd like to pay for that. I said, Well, it's not really worth it. Because it's a bit of, I just, I just, I just want to take care of it without any, any harm coming. I thought that was really interesting because when something like that happens, I mean, I've had a few accidents over the years. Um, I mean, my excuse is I drive 25, 30,000 miles a year, so statistically I'm going to have more accidents, but I've driven into walls, um, central reservations, other people's cars, all, all kinds of things. Um, it's quite bad, actually, isn't it? So that, that's happened to me uh, a fair bit, normally because I'm quite distracted. When you have an accident, there is a cost, isn't there? Someone has to pay. Now, I think Marion actually had three choices here. She could have decided to do nothing to the damage and just think, because you see people drive around in damaged cars, don't you? Think, I just drive around in a damaged car. Uh, it's entropy, isn't it? It kicks in, everything's decaying anyway. So if you damage your car, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. It'll start to rust, it'll start to decay, eventually it'll fall apart. So if you do nothing to the damage, it will get worse and worse and worse and worse. Decay will just set in. If she did nothing to deal with the damage at all physically and harboured resentment towards me long term, that's even worse. We'll come on to that in a minute. So that's one option, do nothing. The second option is she could have hounded me and pursued me to pay the damage, to pay the bill. Which in one sense is quite reasonable, isn't it? If you do damage, someone or something has to pay. The third option was, which she was very gracious, which was, I will absorb the cost of that myself. It's just a law of, of creation, isn't it? You damage something, a cost has to be borne. So that's, that's like economics, that's an economical example, an economic example, sorry, of 
damage occurring. But what if it's emotional? That's a little bit different, isn't it? What if there's emotional damage being done? What if, I've been in this sort of scenario too, what if um, someone starts to really viciously have a go at you on social media? I might have just experienced that a few times. What if that happens? What if someone's got an injustice thing against you? What if someone's lied about you? What if your neighbours really wronged you? What if there is a work situation where you are unfairly sacked or disciplined and it wasn't you? What about your mates at school where someone's done some injustice to you? Now I don't know about you, but I know what I'm like. In my human nature, when I've been wronged in any sense, one of my things that really gets to me, it's a couple of things that can get to me, one of them is a sense of injustice. I don't like it when I've been falsely accused or people are having a go at me or there's some damage has been done towards me or my family in some way. What kind of reaction kicks off inside you when that happens? That's the question. What do you want when that happens? You can interact with me. I'm into that. Let's have a bit of a conversation. Let's have a fight. That's a... What happens? What do you want? Revenge. Vengeance is mine. It's a gangster thing, isn't it? They say revenge is a dish best served cold. And some people are like that. They think and they start the plot to get their way back. We want people, don't we, to be held to account. Is that not true? You want to hold people to account when they've wronged you. You want to get them back. Actually, there's a couple of different levels of this. You might be saying, if you're a Christian, you might say, I want them to be held to account because that's the just thing to do. Outwardly, looking very calm, I think we need to deal with this in some way. But inside, you're going, <laughs> and I'm going to get them back somehow. I was in a work situation years ago, and I was in banking, where, where one of my colleagues was stitched up by a manager, and he said to me, took me in a room, and a cup of tea, and he went, I'm going to make him think he's my best mate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take him out for beers and drinks. It'll take me a couple of years, and then I'm gonna do him. I'm gonna get my own back. Now, when there's emotional, that's a bit, that's a bit psychopathic, actually, isn't it? When there's, when there's, it's amazing how many people think like that. Amazing. It's amazing when there's an injustice. Have you ever like, had a bad email and written an amazing reply back? Have you ever done that? Like a stunning reply, you know, and you've even got out the thesaurus, you know, to make sure you're using some brilliant words just to crush them. You ever done that? It's actually quite therapeutic. It's really quite good to do that. I find it's quite a good thing. Just delete it. But this is the human nature. See, there's a few responses to emotional damage. You could seek for some kind of holding to account. And actually, sometimes, that's why. That you need to do that. But what if you're seeking to hold someone to account and you've not actually forgiven them? The danger is, the outcome of that way of doing it, is you just become more and more cold-hearted and bitter as a person. That can happen. What if you choose to do nothing at all? Well, 
sometimes over the years of pastoral ministry, you meet people who have decided not to do anything about something, except that the bitterness can sometimes grow. It just grows and grows and grows and grows, and people get more and more hard-hearted. I think, because we do believe here in this church that we do have a personal enemy set against us called the devil, and he does use his forces against us, I think one thing that the devil tries to do is take from us the, the, the ability to give the benefit of the doubt and believe the best about people. It's kind of a Christian way of living. As soon as trust is damaged, you've done nothing about it. Actually, that can lead to a really hard heart. So you could do nothing but just grow in it. Or you could seek to forgive. If you seek to forgive, I'm trying to construct some sort of philosophical argument there, so you have to bear with me. If you seek to forgive, that can cost you. That can hurt, actually. You will come to a point of resurrection and peace as you forgive. But actually, that could be quite a hard path to get to. I don't know if you've ever experienced this when someone's wronged you and you set your heart to forgive them. Do you know what? Just like when you crash your car, a cost has to be borne. And actually, it can make you feel like you're suffering. Have you ever experienced that? Do you ever experience that? When you truly forgive, a cost still has to be borne. Somewhere. Somewhere inside it hurts. You might have to swallow your pride. People might carry on thinking things about you and there's not much you can do about it. You know, you can have long-term hurt. I've been in a situation before where I, um, where uh, a, a guy in a previous church wrote a terrible letter about me and I made the mistake of opening it just before leading the communion service and preaching on the subject of loving one another. Yeah, I kid you not. This letter was extremely well written and actually quite damning, and it had been copied to all my elders and deacons. And so I'm sitting at the front of the church, and I'm getting into the, uh, get it, man, get it, get it, mood. And then I felt the Lord speak to me, and he went something like this. If you can't forgive him, you can't speak. And I saw him walk in at the back of the church. So I said to the Lord, you're going to have to help me. Because there's one thing going over and hugging him, but it's another thing not to let that turn into a bear hug and crushing the life out of him. <laughs> All I think I could do. So I went over to him and uh, I just said, um, let's call him Dave. Went over to him and said, Dave, um, I literally just opened a letter that you sent. He went, right. I said, that's uh, a bit tougher. He went, yeah. But it's my honest appraisal of you and your abilities. Went, okay. I said, well, I just want you to know that I love you, Dave. I love you, mate. And I put my arms out. <laughs> I think, I probably in my head I was doing that. So I went and gave him a hug. And I just trusted that God would meet me in that. And he did, and I felt peace, and I preached. But I did have to go and do with some stuff afterwards. We had to sit down and talk that letter through. You know, it's quite a thing, thing. But a cost had to be borne, didn't it? Because inside, when you totally forgive, that really hurts. There's all sorts of injustices. But you come to a point 
I use this word deliberately, of resurrection. Where if you forgive, peace comes. So what about God? So let's ask, how does God's forgiveness work? That's the big question today. And why did Jesus have to die? Well, I think there is a there is almost like a, a cosmic wall going on here that when damage is done or wrong is done, someone somewhere has to bear the cost. So when we go to Genesis 3, uh, I think we can trace this through from Old Testament to New Testament, we have this account of the fall. So what we call the fall, so Adam and Eve have been created, and let me just put this out there now, regardless of your view on whether we evolved or we were created, and there's usually a divergence of opinion in every church, my view is, I'll say this now, there had to be a first man called Adam. That's really important. That's really important. And you'll see why in a minute. So, Adam is there with Eve, and it says in Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. Verse 25 is really important. They felt no shame. That's really important. Then this happens. Now the snake was more crafty, Genesis 3, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Isn't that interesting? You know, the devil always speaks like that. Seeds of doubt. Did God say? Did he really? Did he really? Joe, whenever you're, just as an aside, just complete aside, pursuing a vision, praying into something, seeking to see God do something, praying for people who aren't Christians, pursuing anything where the Holy Spirit is at the centre, that when you sense that vision, when, you, when, when you're seeking prayer for something, it is almost inevitably followed up by a little voice that says, did God say? Did he? Did he really? That's how the enemy seeks to undermine so much of what the kingdom is trying to do out there when churches are trying to build. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat from the fruit, uh, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she blame it God. The woman did it. She did it. The woman, you want me? The woman that you put here with me, she gave you some food from the tree and I ate it. I almost hear the intonation going, she, she gave it to me and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl in your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her, you will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your painting childbearing very severe, with painful labour you will give birth to children, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful soil you will eat food from it all the days of your life, you will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve, because she had become the mother of all the living. And there you have the account of the fall. Isn't that interesting? The pre that rebellion, there was no shame. Soon as the rebellion occurred, shame kicks in. Not only is the sin present in them, actually it's affecting the whole world now. There's almost like a, a cosmic, well there is like a cosmic impact here. The ground's cursed, the enmity comes in. They weren't eating the animals before. Now animals are trying to eat each other. Everything's gone dark. First Adam sin. Now we use this word sin, don't we? Which can become a bit of an old-fashioned word that people are not used to it. But let me just put it like this: um, We sin. We we sin because we are sinners. Because of Adam, there is a, a curse that's running through. It's it's it's, it's like a like a computer virus that's been unstoppable. It's just spread. We are born physically alive. But we might say we are born spiritually dead. We are born into sin. We sin because we are sinners, but we are all sinners because we sin. Because there's our choice too. And it says in Romans, isn't it? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Let me just dig that out so we can see that coming out from the Word. So if we go to uh, Romans, and uh, we go to Romans chapter 3. It says very, very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says in Romans 5, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. We sin because we are sinners, we are sinners because we sin. I don't know about you, but Paul says there's this thing that rages inside us. Why is it I do what I don't want to do? I feel the tentacles of that in my life quite a lot, don't you? Don't you? I mean, it's just like... What is going on with me? I've been trying to follow Jesus for so long now, for like a good couple of decades, and I can still feel these forces working in me. It's actually, when you analyse sin, it's, it's not just like you nick the pick and mix from walrus when you were eight. That is an act of sin. Actually, it's a deep, it's a deep-rooted self-centeredness. That's why there, there is shame in there, there's guilt in there. We live under this condemnation. So because of this sin thing, a price has to be paid somewhere. When damage is done, a price has to be paid. And you'll know now the well-worn illustration, won't you, of the judge in court who has the person in front of him who has uh, been done for speeding and the judge gives him a hundred quid fine. You'll know this well-worn illustration, probably 99% of you, the judge gets his person in front of him who has done wrong and he finds them a hundred quid but then gets out of the dock and says but I'm going to pay it for you 
The price has to be paid, I'm going to do it. It turned out that the judge was the father of the person in the court who had done the wrong thing. That's the illustrations often used. The judge looked at the son and said, you deserve punishment, but actually I'm going to come around and pay that for you. And that's what we have in the cross. You crash your car, a price has to be paid. You do a wrong to someone, somewhere absorbs a cost. You forgive someone, there is suffering. Somewhere, someone suffers, but then you move through that when your heart is pure to a point of resurrection. And that's exactly what we have when we come to the cross. In Adam, we had sin, we had death coming into the world. We had decay and destruction which runs through the human race, and it's still there now. And do you know what? People are searching for a way out. They really are. You do an Amazon search for self-help books. Do you know how many self-help books are? If you do a simple search, check me later. Just put self-help in Amazon books. Over 529,000 books. Because I believe that deep down people know the kind of people they ought to be. But human wisdom ain't going to get you there. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I, I, I was looking at the search earlier. I wonder if I've still got it on my phone. It's amazing. Let me just see if I've got it. Let's have a little look. If I haven't got it, we'll move on swiftly. Amazon UK. Self-help. Ten simple tools to a happier life. Remove negative thinking. How to instantly harness mindfulness. I heart me. The science of self-love. The chimp paradox. Self-help. Overcoming low self-esteem. Amazing how many things about depression and low self-esteem. And stuff about guilt too. Self-help for your nerves. Learn to relax by overcoming self Personal transformation strategies for the super self-esteem. <laughs> Break any bad habit. Anti-stress art therapy for busy people. It just sounds like I'm not getting off myself. That sounds quite good, actually. Why do a little uh, Kindle order later? Interesting, isn't it? We're born into sin. Physically alive, spiritually dead, and yet inside all people is this yearning to become whole, this yearning for peace. You ain't going to get there on your own. It's not going to happen. That's why Jesus died. Someone had to pay a price. Someone had to take the suffering of the wrong, the cosmic wrong and the individual wrong that we do. That's why when people give their lives to Jesus, like Marion did, you watch, their, you watch their faces change. Someone I walked out of the church in 1990 on the 22nd of April and felt I saw colour for the first time, like the veil had come off my eyes. It's amazing. I, I cannot describe to you how amazing it is. How much we are loved that a man would lay down his life for you. To bear the cost of something. I mean, take what Marion did for me. It cost her a few hundred quid. The cost of this is on a scale we cannot even begin to comprehend. It's bringing the universe into order. It makes us whole again. This is why we pray for people to be healed and whole again. When they accepted Jesus, I kind of gave a testimony. Didn't she a few weeks ago? And chronic pain all that time. Gives her life to Jesus Christ. It's healed. Because God is in the business of bringing things back to order. Now, 
We don't always get healed because, as I've said before, we are living in a time of struggle where the kingdom is now, but actually the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. And sometimes God wants to do a work in us, a discipline, overcoming. You can't have a theology of healing unless you've got one of suffering. To forgive brings about suffering sometimes. That's the nature of it. But it helps us understand. Do you know, every time you forgive and it hurts, before you come to that place of resurrection, that is just a micro example of what Jesus went through for you and not even touching the scale of it. Let me tell you a story. Try and help us explain this a bit more. When I was pastor in Bidderwicky, we had a fellow in the church called Brian. And Brian used to be a gangster. He used to be a, like a, an enforcer. Proper job, like proper hard man, really. And he was married to a woman called Sue. And Sue was a Christian, she had come to Christ, and, and uh, Sue and Brian used to come to church. I think it went reluctantly. We were kind of a chilled out church, and it was a bit quite informal, but Brian would always be there in his suit, looking angry. So, angry man. He's in his 50s. One morning I was preaching, and I talked about how, this kind of thing, I said, you know, Jesus can take lorry loads of sin, bad stuff, and just deal with it. There's nothing beyond what God can do. And uh, Brian came over to me in his typically sinister way afterwards and said, that's a bit weird. He said, because I have said about my life, I've got loyal loads of sin. I said, well, you know, Jesus can do with it. I went, no, I don't believe it. Can't happen. I said, let's have, you know, the great British solution I often talk about. We'll have a cup of tea, a bit of cake, talk about it. So we met up in the week and we sat down, we had a cup of tea and a bit of cake. And I said, tell me a story. And the story went like this. He used to be a very violent man working in gangs in East End of London. And he was given a bit of a slap by a, a rival criminal. And so Brian followed him around so he could get him. And one day this chap, who was also quite a violent criminal, was walking past a building site. Brian ducked behind a fence, saw a lump of wood, a lump of four by two, uh, snuck up behind this guy. This was pre-CCTV cameras and mobile phones, all that kind of stuff. Snuck up behind this guy and whacked him in the back of the head. And then as a guy went down on the floor, he kept whacking him. He was in a frenzy of fury, and a, just like a red mist of anger. By the time he finished hitting him, he stopped and he realised there was a six-inch nail coming out of the middle wood. So Ryan, thinking he might have killed him, uh, ran, ran and hid. He left the East End of London, went towards Essex Way to live, um, and then was keeping his eyes on the paper. The assault appealed, appeared in the newspaper, they were looking for witnesses. This was probably back in the 70s, something like that. Um, Brian tells me this story. He said, can God forgive me? I think I might have killed him. I don't, I don't know what happened. You know, I'm, I'm sure he didn't die, but that's just, you know. I'm a terrible man, come. He said, I've done things. I'm just a terrible man. He said, God can't forgive that. So I said, yes, he can. I went, no, he can't, my dear chap. I went, so effect. He said, I can. I said, he can't. Thank you. And a conversation ended. Two weeks later, Brian comes to see me, tells me a story. Says he's walking down the high street. This is Billericke. Billericke. Little town, really. He's walking down Billericke High Street. And he sees this big man and this big, big lump of a fella coming towards him with a group of people. And he thinks, I think I know that man. This man intercepts Brian. He's talking in a broad Australian accent. And this man says, 
Look, Brian. Brian says, I know who you are. This guy says, I was terrified of you. <coughs> I was in hospital for ages. I was so scared you were going to come and get me. But I left the country. I went to live in Australia. I've been living in Sydney. He said, I'm back in Bilawiki because some of my family live here and I've come for a visit. And Brian started to speak to him. He decided to, didn't know what to say. He just went, look, look. This man stopped him and said, it's okay, Brian. He said, I know it was you. But I forgave you 30 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. You wouldn't know about that, would you? Can you imagine the reaction in Brian, can't you? Very, very emotional. So Brian comes to see me and says, this thing about loyal loads of sin, I can't be forgiven. Yeah, that. Brian was baptised. Never followed Jesus Christ. Died a couple of years ago. We pray a man at peace. An incredible thing, isn't it, that God would actually put a bloke from Sydney on Billericay High Street at the same time Brian is walking. I mean, Billericay, at the same time that Brian's coming up the high street on the same road. But it tells us something. Nothing is beyond forgiveness of God because a man died. The punishment was taken. Took it. Nothing is beyond him. On a cosmic scale and on an individual scale. It also tells us how much must God love Brian and therefore all of you to put a bloke in a high street in Billericay two weeks after he tells him, tells me, the pastor, I can't be forgiven. How much must he love us? That's incredible. That individual attention to each life. So it tells us something, I think, today by way of response. Because we want to be message carriers of this. We want to see people walking free like Brian did. We want to see that grace flow through people's lives like Marion graciously showed me two minutes after meeting Jesus. We want to see this. John 3 says we must be born again. We, we want to communicate a message to people that we might be born physically alive, but spiritually we are yet to come alive. It also says this to us individually. We need to be a people of forgiveness and grace too. Just on a pastoral implication here. Dear God, maybe this a community of people where there is no enmity between one another. That because of the love that we have shown, so we love one another. And does that mean we never have a tough conversation with each other? No. Does it mean we don't have to clear the air sometimes? But of course, because we're people. People are like porcupines on an iceberg. They huddle together to get warm, and as soon as you get close to each other, you start stabbing each other in the face. It's just what happens. We're people. We have to then deal with ourselves and huddle up again. We want to be a huddling church. But occasionally we're like porcupines because we're sinful, but we need to be walking in grace. Can we be a church that exhibits this grace? Can we? Also, what if you're sitting here and thinking, I'm still carrying a bit of something here about a situation, about a family member, a work colleague, some deep hurt. I want to say to you, there's a way through. We can totally forgive. And it might bring you initially to a point of suffering. But resurrection awaits. Which is my final thing. 
Death came into the world through sin. We started to die and decay. This is why the resurrection is so important. Because it's effectively Jesus saying, where was Jesus saying, have some of that back. We can live. Death isn't the end anymore. We have a life eternal to come. But this is the thing. You have a life to the full to live now. That's why as Christians, you're allowed to have a grumpy face, but at least let's have some inner joy kicking off. That's why the grace of fire, we live. We don't just live superficially, we live. We should now be living in such a way that we are squeezing as much juice out of this life as possible and leveraging everything that God's given us to see many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. We worship God, we make him known, we journey with excitement and enthusiasm. I understand that sometimes we have bad days. I understand we can have seasons of suffering, but resurrection awaits. We are the people for the resurrection because a price was paid. Damage was done, a price was paid. That's what we believe as a church. That's the message we want to be carrying out. So if you're a visitor, or you're looking at us, you want to know what are these people about, that's what we're about. We're about communicating good news to people. If you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're sitting on the fence with it, I just simply want to say to you, sitting on the fence is an incredibly painful place to be. Come to a place of peace. Come to a place of peace. Accept what Jesus has done for you. We don't want to beat you with a stick and say you need to follow Jesus. We're saying accept you are loved. Accept that you were died for. I remember sitting in a chair when I was 19, having back thoroughly depressed, unable to go home for various reasons, uh, run out of money, sitting in a terrible bedsit place, feeling thoroughly depressed, really down. And uh, having known Christ and sort of walked away from it. And I said a little prayer. I said, God, I think I'm worth nothing. And in the stillness, just felt this little whisper from the Holy Spirit saying, But you are worth dying for, son. But I love you. And actually, that was the beginning of a road back for me. And Karen, who had dumped me, because I was a bit of an idiot. She got back with me that Christmas. <laughs> so life began again. 21 years on. There we go. 25 years on. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring life to people here and you would help us to bring life to people in our town. Help us to be carriers of good news. Help us to live with grace. Help us to demonstrate radical love. Help us to love one another. Help us to be a people who demonstrate radical and total forgiveness of each other in all situations we find ourselves in. And when we do, Father, we suffer for that, lead us to a place of resurrection. We thank you that we follow a risen king who defeated death, prepared a place for us in eternity and we have life to the full now. Thank you.